0: today is from uh, John 4, verses 1 to 26. It's entitled, uh, Jesus Talks with a Samaritan Woman. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptising more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptised, but his disciples. When the Lord heard of this, he left Judea and went back uh, went back once more to Galilee now he had to go through Samaria so he came to a town in Samaria called Sikar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph Jacob's well was there and Jesus tired as he was from the journey sat down by the well it was about the sixth hour When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, "'If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, "'you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water.' "'Sir,' the woman said, "'you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. "'Where can you get this living water?' Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so, I, so that I won't get thirsty and have to uh, keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain Yet the time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. May God's blessing be on his word. Thank you.
1: Good morning, everybody. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time that we have together this morning to come around your word. We pray, O Lord, that we would come to understand the true living water that you give and that we would receive that. We would receive um, correct instruction on what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. And guide us as we work our way through this passage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we looked at the encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus was at the top end of the social stratum in this world. He's a male, a Pharisee on the ruling council. Despite his social and religious standing, though we saw that he was not connected to God through his worldly status or through his religion. Jesus told him that he needed to be born from above in order to be connected to God. This week we look at an encounter of a different kind but with essentially the same message. The woman at the well is at the bottom end of the social stratum in this world. She's a Samaritan female a divorcee five times over, and now an outcast who seemingly avoids social contact by visiting the well to draw water by herself in the heat of the day. Now, in the story, Jesus needed to travel from Judea in the south of Israel through Samaria to get to Galilee. He comes to Jacob's well around midday and sits down for a rest and meets the Samaritan woman while his disciples go into town to get lunch. He engages her in conversation and asks her for a drink. And this shocks the woman because it's unusual and even scandalous for a Jewish male to speak to and interact with a Samaritan female. Jesus breaks down the social barriers and the inequalities that we set up Based on gender and age and race and disability and whatever else, Jesus values and rescues and shows kindness to all people and welcomes anyone into his kingdom who is willing to come to him in faith. Let's now have a look at what Jesus does to engage this outcast and reveal to her how to be reconnected to God. We begin with a discussion about water. Earlier, uh, according to verses 1 and 2, Jesus had been with his followers who were baptising people in Judea. Baptism in that context represents people being symbolically cleansed in preparation for meeting with God. So water is a cleansing agent. But water also sustains us and brings life which is the start of the discussion that Jesus has with the woman. Now, water is a significant reality for us as human beings. The world is mostly covered in water. The human body is predominantly made of water. We can't survive long without water, and we need to keep going back again and again to get water for sustenance and for cleansing. Now, think of your life without water. How annoying is it when the water is off at your house? It seems that every time they dig up my street for some reason, they nick a pipe. And you would think that professional diggers would know how to dial before you dig. But every time, they nick a pipe. And then the water's off for five hours or half a day or longer. It's brutal. And it tests your godly Christian patience because you can't do anything without it. Water is essential to life. Jesus uses this point as an opportunity to speak not about physical water that we constantly need to keep going back for, but the spiritual water that we need even more desperately and that eternally cleanses, uh, cleanses and sustains us. Have a look at verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered, "'Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, "'but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. "'Indeed, the water I give them will become in them "'a spring of water welling up to eternal life.'" Jesus shows us that the physical realities of this world are connected in understanding the spiritual realities that he reveals. The water that is essential for physical life and that quenches physical thirst points to a deeper reality, a spiritual reality of the need for spiritual water that is essential for spiritual life and quenches spiritual thirst. And what is the source of this spiritual thirst? What is it that is the heart of the human condition? What is the fundamental human problem? According to the Bible, our fundamental problem is sin and death, which is a result of us being separated from our Creator. We are so dead in our transgressions and sins, and so spiritually parched, and so darkened in our understanding of the nature of reality, that we seek sustenance and cleansing not from God, our Sustainer and our Creator but from whatever the world may have to offer to fill the void and keep us in our sleepy delusion that this is all there really is to life. The woman asked Jesus for this water that he has to offer, not really understanding at this point what Jesus is talking about. In verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. It's at this point that the conversation turns from a conversation about water to the woman's need for what Jesus offers. Have a look at verse, from verse 16. He told her, "'Go call your husband and come back.' "'I have no husband,' she replied. Jesus said to her, "'You're right when you say you have no husband. "'In fact, you've had five husbands, "'and the man you now have is not your husband. "'What you've just said is quite true.'" The woman's life situation is symptomatic of her disconnection from God and her dangerous spiritual predicament. This woman has been trying to quench her spiritual thirst with worldly things, namely her relationships with men. Now this is something that we all do in different ways. We try to fill the void and tame the chaos of life by engaging in all sorts of pursuits to find fulfilment and meaning. Some of those pursuits are good, like finding a husband or a wife and starting a family or pursuing a career that is meaningful or running a marathon or being involved in the community or being involved in the church or whatever. Some pursuits are not so good, like becoming addicted to something or sexual immorality or any other abuse of the good things that God gives us. But, regardless of the pursuit, if we are not connected to God by being born from above and worshipping God in spirit and truth, then we are, as Paul describes the Gentiles in Ephesians 3, we are without hope and without God in the world. If we look at Nicodemus from the previous chapter, we see that he has the same issue as this outcast woman. In this world, he is leagues ahead of her in that he is a male Pharisee leader. If anyone's getting in, it's him. Top of the pile. She is at the other end of the social hierarchy, and yet they both need Christ. Jesus says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, this insight that Jesus has into her life causes the woman to change tack in the conversation. The woman seeks to change the subject from her situation to a discussion about worship. Jesus uses this opportunity to show her the true meaning of worship and being connected to God. Have a look at verses 19 and 20. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. This section builds on what Jesus is getting at in speaking of our desperate need for God, and it looks at the concept of worship. Worship basically means service. Who or what do you serve? The woman at the well serves men. She's had five husbands and she's currently knocking about with another guy who she's not married to. Her moral lifestyle shows that the, she is disconnected from God. She is not worshipping God. She initiates a change in subject from her relationships to the place of worship, perhaps because of the searing insights Jesus makes into her life. She identifies that Jesus is a prophet and then makes the statement about the segregation of Samaritans from Jews in relation to places of worship. She, along with many, many other people, are desperately wrong about what worship is. It has nothing to do with place or race or anything else. The importance is not in such peripheral things. The importance is the object of worship, which is God himself. The created purpose for every single human being is to worship God, not our spouses or friends or ourselves or things. To do otherwise is to thwart and destroy and to stuff up God's design mandate. If we're not worshipping God, we're worshipping something or someone else. Humans are designed as worshippers and image bearers to reflect and to serve God. That's our primary purpose as a human being. And if we're not doing that, then we end up reflecting and serving something else, thus going against what we were actually made for. So what is worship? Worship is a life of connection and service to God where we bring all that we do, all that we have, and all that we are into a life of sacrifice to God because of his sacrifice for us. In uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, This is your true and proper worship. Notice how true worship of the true God is connected to the true Saviour of the world and his merciful sacrifice for us. To truly worship means to be connected to God through faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and to express that connection through sacrificial service in everything we do. For the Christian, worship is a state of being, not something to be turned on and off when we feel like being spiritual. We don't start worshipping at 10am or 4pm on Sundays and then stop when we get to the car. Rather, worship is the joyful life lived in gratitude and service for the one who took away our sin and our judgement and even death and hell. So worship is not primarily about singing pretty average songs loosely based on the Bible. We don't do that here. All of our songs are awesome here at the branch. It's not about being in a special building. Worship is having all of our faculties focused on God the Father through Jesus the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Worshipping God is not defined by geographical or physical locations as the woman thinks that they are, as if any place or building has anything to do with a connection to the omnipresent God. Worshipping God does not start when the synthesizer starts, the emotionally charged tunes and you close your eyes and feel spiritual. What Christians do on the weekend when we meet together and sing and pray and read the Bible and preach and encourage each other is an aspect of worship done corporately. And it's very important that we do that regularly. But worship goes far beyond that. Children can worship God when they honour their parents and clean their room and do the dishes. You can worship God when you study hard at school and actually be thankful for your education rather than complaining about it. You can worship God by being a considerate driver on the roads, which is sometimes a difficult thing to do, depending on your personality type. You can worship God by keeping your hands off your boyfriend or your girlfriend and keeping the marriage bed pure. You can worship God by giving time and money to those who need it. You can worship God like Jesus does by loving the outcast and talking to them and telling them the good news of the gospel. We can worship God by wanting to know him better, by spending time alone in his word and praying. We can worship God by having the courage to do what's right even if it's scary or difficult or costly to do so. Notice that worship often has a sacrificial element to it. It's giving something up to God and doing so with joy, not begrudgingly. Worshiping in the spirit and in truth means not looking to a human-built temple as the ultimate focus for human worship of the Creator. That focus is Jesus, a perfect source of immediate connection to God because Jesus is God in the flesh. We can only know God and be connected to him in Christ. Nothing or no one else can bring us to God. We can't approach him through religion or ritual or our own righteousness. As part of the broken and rebellious fabric of a world that is alienated from God by sin and death, we have no hope for any kind of connection to a perfect, transcendent, eternal and holy God. We are destined for the dung heap no matter what we try. It's only a perfect human who embodies God in every way that we have hope. And that is who Jesus is. And that is who the woman at the well identifies and recognises in Jesus. And that is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. A follower of Jesus is one who begins a journey where the focus is no longer acting in rebellion against God by focusing on the futile life of licentiousness, nor the proud life of legalism and judgmentalism. A follower of Jesus is someone who worships God in the spirit and in truth. Now, what does it mean to worship the Father in the spirit and in truth? I'll have a drink of water. Look at what Jesus says to the woman in verses 21 to 24. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews, because Jesus is a Jew. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So we are to worship the Father in the spirit. Who is the spirit? The spirit is the very presence of God. The third person of the Trinity. Who is beyond the physical and elemental dynamics of this world. He is that which is pure consciousness, pure holiness, pure glory, pure love, pure truth. Yet, whose hand we can see in this creation of physical reality, which shows us something of the God who exists. In the the physical creation, we see the vastness of the universe made up of endless galaxies and stars and planets and so on. And then we zoom in on our planet and we see beauty and order where all of creation reflects something of God. And Paul, once again, in Romans 1, verse 20, says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now, God is not a part of his creation. That's the idea of pantheism, where everything is God, the idea of Brahman in the Hindu religion. But we do clearly see God's hand in creation, and the creation itself is designed to both reflect something of God and to praise God. The heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist says. So, the spirit of God is the actual presence of God himself in our world. To worship God in the spirit means to be connected to God through faith in the Messiah Jesus and to serve him and love him with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength. To worship in the spirit is to receive the life-giving water of salvation that Jesus offers. When you become a Christian, the spirit indwells you and empowers you to live a life of worship to God. The spirit enables us to see the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what it means to worship in spirit. But what does it mean to worship in truth? Worshiping in truth means acknowledging that Jesus is the truth of God, the embodiment of truth. John's Gospel has the theme of truth throughout. Truly, truly, I tell you, I tell you the truth is repeated by Jesus. At the very start of the um, gospel, in chapter 1, verse 14, uh, we get that big picture before we we see um, kind of zooming in throughout the rest of the gospel. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Or later on in chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus brings the truth to a world of lies and falsehood. The woman at the well was living a lie. Perhaps she'd been looking for truth in men. She'd had a few, and now she's playing fast and loose with another guy. Then she has this encounter with Jesus who brings truth crashing into her world of falsehood. Now, the truth is much more than factual correctness about, uh, uh, the, according to the principles of the world. Jesus shows us what truth is in the way that he speaks and in his actions. So looking after the poor and the oppressed and the weak and people with disabilities is truth calling out legalism and greed and laziness and sexual immorality and drunkenness that leads to debauchery is truth. Anything that comes from God, honours God, glorifies God, obeys God and sacrifices to God is truth. The ultimate truth is Christ because he is God. He comes from God. He honours God. He glorifies God. He obeys God and he sacrifices himself to God. Jesus reveals to us the truth of God. In Jesus, the dimensions of heaven and earth are brought together where they had been separated due to human sin and rebellion that leads to chaos and destruction, violence and death that we see manifested in our world on a daily basis. Sickness, disease, natural disaster, greed, warfare, revenge, injustice, famine, poverty, atrocious treatment of women and children. All are transformed in the words and actions of Jesus. He heals the sick, raises the dead, feeds the multitude, brings peace and joy, blesses and includes women and children, calms the chaotic forces of nature and so on. Now, when Jesus comes again, he will make this glimpse of heaven. We get a glimpse of heaven in the ministry of Jesus as you watch him driving out evil, bringing restoration, healing. When he comes again, he will make this glimpse of heaven a global reality for the whole planet. The end of Revelation provides a picture of heaven and earth united so that all sin and evil and death and hell is purged and erased from memory when the old order of things has passed away. Now, this encounter between Jesus and the outcast woman is a glimpse into the truth of that future worldwide reality. She gets a taste of heaven because heaven has come to her in the person of Jesus, the King of heaven, He and she both know perfectly well the impact of sin on her life in the cycle of poor relationships with men that she has had. Her her situation is symptomatic of a much larger problem that Jesus addresses. She's ostracised from her community and recognises that she's also ostracised from God. Under the religious setting of the day, the old order of things... She has no hope of salvation or connection with God. Her religion, her gender, her lifestyle, her nationality, everything in the world is keeping her from coming to God. But none of those things keep God from coming to her. None of those things keep God from coming to her nothing can separate us from the love of god that is in christ jesus our lord her situation is symptomatic of the universal issue that affects each one of us which is our separation from god and no matter how religious you are like nicodemus or how much you ignore god or how sinful you think you are or how righteous or how intelligent you think you are or how dumb There's nothing in this world and no one from this world who can do anything about it. We need outside help. In fact, we need someone to come into our world and somehow breach the gap. We need a perfect human to represent us before a holy God. We need this person to be our representative and our advocate. We need someone to become one of us so as to somehow make a fallen, sinful humanity acceptable to a holy God. We need someone who has the power to deal with sin and death. But no one has ever been able to do this. So we need God himself to do it. We need God in the flesh to bring heaven and earth together once again. This encounter with the woman at the well is an incredible insight and revelation from God that our broken world needs to hear. See how Jesus uses the specific situation of the woman to bring the truth of the gospel to bear. He addresses her need. He points out her moral failing, not in a judgmental way. That's not going to win anybody over. But he points out her moral failing, and then he gets to the heart of the matter, that the desperate need for humans to be reconnected to God the Father in the Spirit through the Messiah, the one sent by God to reconcile the world to God through his sacrificial death and resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Have a look at the last two verses of our passage, verses 25 and 26. The woman said, "'I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming,' When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus is our only connection to God in heaven. He is our only source of life-giving water. Jesus gives us his spirit to worship God in spirit and in truth. He is the truth. He is the ultimate reality. We long for the day when the fulfilment of all things comes to pass. Now we see only a glimpse. We have the sure hope and joy of salvation now, but we are still limited to struggle with sin and sickness and the shadow of death. But we have a deposit, the promised Holy Spirit, who continually points us both back to Christ's death and his resurrection and forward to the day of his return and our glorification when we will receive those incredible words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we pray, come Lord Jesus. We pray that you would, until that day, make us your hands and your feet, to go to the outcast, to bear witness to the incredible salvation, this incredible living water that Jesus offers. Lord, may we grasp it for ourselves and ensure that we are in the faith and then pass on that faith, pass on that message, that incredible message of salvation that we have in Jesus. Father, thank you so much for Jesus' death on the cross that washes all of our sin away. Thank you that you raised him by your spirit from the dead three days later, guaranteeing us justification and eternal life through faith in him. Lord, go with us. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, apparently, the way